0: I recognize this morning that there are so many of you that are guests here, and can I just say welcome? And for those of you that are from this area and you don't have a home church, can I just welcome you home? Because I want you to know that you will be loved here, that uh, we live in the grace of a mighty Savior. For those of you that may come from backgrounds where the worship service today was a little bit more engaged, a little more lively than you're used to, welcome home. Can I just just say there's a difference when the life of Christ dwells in you than just being in a religious setting. And today is the Super Bowl of the church, Resurrection Sunday. By the way, I love all of the jerseys that you're wearing. You look great today. I want to talk about the resurrection today, and I'm going to ask before I have you turn to John chapter 20, if you'd just bow your heads with me for a moment. Heavenly Father, as we turn to our Bible today, what we don't know, teach us. Where our thoughts need to go, lead us. What we are not, make us. What is true that we do not believe, convince us. And we pray this in the authority of Jesus' name, our living Savior, amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 20, and I want to read the first 10 verses, and I'm reading out of the New King James Version for this particular part, and then it'll be the uh, NIV version for the other scriptures, so you're going to have to hang on to this if you would. But the scripture says, Now the first day of the week Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out with the other disciple as they were going to the tomb, and they ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed." For as yet, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then verse 10, then the disciples went again, went away again to their own homes. Now, I have to just point out to you, I I got a kick out of that last verse as I was kind of studying that this week because I was thinking, if you were trying to prove a mythology that the resurrection was a myth and that it wasn't true, I don't think that you would finish up a story with the idea, then the disciples went home and had coffee and bagels. It just, it just seems too real to be there. It just has all the authenticating elements of eyewitness reporting. So what did you do after you discovered the empty tomb? We went home and had cereal. Isn't that what you do after an earth-shattering event such as this? I listened to the news this week, and I discovered that there was a new report out by, from the Gallup polls that said that from 1945 to today... In 1945, 75% of the people that live in the country attended church. That number today has dropped to 47%. In fact, in 1945, there were only 9% of the people that didn't believe that Jesus was risen, and today that number in America has grown to 30%. You see, statistics can prove anything, but in this case, the statistics indicate to us that there are less people that are convinced of the reality of a God, the reality of a God that died for their sins, and a God that was resurrected from the dead than there have been in years past. So today what I would like to do is I'd like to approach this scripture from the aspect of understanding that we live in a culture today where you are going to have to talk people in and address issues for them to step out of unbelief and into belief. There's really no two ways to look at this Easter thing. And and Paul, when he was the Saul of Tarsus in, in his legal training, knew that you couldn't just make up a story like the story of Jesus. And so he wrote his great chapter on the resurrection and he put it very straightforward in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 and 17, when he said, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. I cannot think of any words that are worse to my soul than the thought that I might still be in my sin today. There's no way around it. Either the songs that we sang today are verifiable data, believable material, or we have been participating with millions and millions of people around the world today in the greatest fabrication of all time. Now, we're going to go back to our text in John, And I want you to understand that as we do so, I want you to hang on to that and look through that with me, but understand that Paul knew the world in which he lived in needed convinced about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, such as the world that we live in. In fact, Paul describes his approach as reasoning with people. He argued with people. He was persuading people, whether he was in the grocery store or whether he was with the academic elite in the uh, intellectual places where the schools were or whether he was in the temple. He always approached it with an understanding that people needed to be convinced of what was happening. And Luke informs us of this again and again and again in the book of Luke. Luke. Acts chapter 17, verse 2, it says, As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from Scripture, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. In verse 17 of that same chapter, it says, He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. He never expected people just to take a leap of faith not knowing where they were going to land. As it related to Jesus, but wanted to give them a firm foundation. In fact, when he went to Corinth, it tells us in Acts 18, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. He did the same thing in Ephesus, and it tells us that he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. And then when he is finally brought up on charges and he is standing there before King Agrippa, he adopts the same position as he begins to argue persuasively about Jesus. And eventually Festus, the Roman governor, couldn't stand it anymore. And it tells us in Acts 26, verses 24 through 26, at this point Festus interrupts Paul's defense. And he says, you are out of your mind. He shouted this at Paul. He said, your great learning is driving you insane. And Paul's response is this, I am not insane. In fact, he looks at Festus and says, frankly, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the king, and the king understands these things. He knows that what I am saying is true and reasonable. In other words, he understands that it's rational. And I begin there this morning because I understand that the world in which we live today, the chances are that it would be an unusual Easter Sunday for us If there were not at least one or two or maybe a few of you that are saying, I'm not sure that I believe the truth of any of this. In fact, I really don't have any interest in it, but my neighbors invite me to church all the time and I thought that Easter was the best way to get them off my back. And so I'm here today and I'm really hoping that you're interesting and I hope you're not long. And then there are others that are here, son-in-laws, that say the only way that I was gonna get a good meal from my mother-in-law is if I came to church with the family today. So here I am, and and, uh, good luck. And, And there are many that may be sitting here today that are just in disbelief about this, and your response mimics that of Festus. You've got to be out of your mind to believe this. Most who say this think that to believe the Bible, one has to dismantle the power of reasoning and deduction and just accept things by faith with no foundation. I want you to understand today that the way I present the word is to give you a foundation of what happened. The Bible tells us that it is a great mistake to automatically suppose that faith and reason are incompatible. In fact, there was an atheist and a journalist. His name was H.L. Minchin, and he stated this, faith is an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. But in fact, His assertion seems rather flimsy when you read the Bible. Do you know there are a lot of people that will argue with you that have never read the Bible? They just have a predetermined belief. In fact, if you read the Bible, you will discover that it is constantly asking you to think, asking you to consider, asking you to put pieces together. Jesus did it all the time. In Luke chapter 12, verses 24 and 27, he says, consider the ravens or consider the birds. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Or consider the lilies that we have here today. He says, they don't labor, they don't spin, and yet I tell you that Solomon in his best Easter outfit didn't look as good as these Easter lilies do. God says, so consider these things, If the God that will clothe the grass of the field and feed the birds, how much more will he clothe and feed you? What Jesus is doing is asking people, I need you to think and understand that I'm arguing from a lesser to a greater. If God looks after the birds and the flowers, don't you think he can look after you? Don't you think, don't you think, please think. The reason that many people have never considered the Christian faith is because some have predetermined that if they thought about it, they would have to dismiss it. In fact, the New Testament is primarily about thinking. It's full of logic. It's full of evidence. It's full of observations of eyewitnesses that are there to lead us to faith. Having said that, now turn if you would to John's description of what happened on the resurrection morning in chapter 20. The events of chapter 20 follow the record of the death and burial of Jesus. And and the first thing that I want you to understand this morning is that how many of you believe that a Roman guard would know somebody who's dead from somebody that's not? Most of you would agree with that. These Roman soldiers were in charge of, of so many different times when they had Executed people by crucifixion, that when they went to the body of Jesus, they would have known whether or not he died or not. There are still some that would argue that said Jesus wasn't really dead, he was only pretending to be dead, and that somehow he was placed within the tomb and he got better While he was in the tomb, wrapped up like a dead body's mummy, and that somehow in the middle of all of that, he was able to escape that and pretend that he had raised himself from the dead. I don't know how many people still believe that, but I believe that if you do, you're really going to have to take your brain out and put it under your chair today to believe that. Because these Roman soldiers would have known whether or not somebody was dead. In fact, they routinely broke the legs of people when they wanted to hurry the process so that the structure that they had of trying to breathe would be broken and they would be asphyxiated earlier. So knowing that Jesus was really dead, it makes it very, very difficult to know what to do with what these women discovered in Scripture. And you need to read John's gospel in the context of Matthew and Mark and Luke. It was like I said last week. We're we're putting together a four-layer chocolate cake with thick frosting right in the middle. And I know that it's getting close to noon and your stomachs are starting to growl. But but in the context of all of this, we put it together. And it tells us in John 20, verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, don't know how many of you go to cemeteries while it's still dark, but they did, Mary Magdalene and the others went to the tomb, and they saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, you need to know that these ladies did not go while it was still dark so that they could have a front row seat to the Easter sunrise service. They had come that morning to pay their last respects to Jesus of Nazareth. They were there because the whole thing was over. They were there because they wanted to attempt to embalm and anoint the body of Jesus because it had all come to a stop on the Sabbath and they couldn't work anymore, so they were back to finish the job. And at the first available opportunity, they show up to deal with the business of death and burial. So the discovery of the empty tomb absolutely freaks them out. And we look today and we think from our perspective, it should have encouraged them If they'd known what we know, they would have been celebrating because they would have known a resurrection, but they did not know that. In fact, they didn't even believe it. And quickly, as they glanced into the tomb, they didn't go in, they just glanced in and recognized the body's not there. They turn around, and they begin to run off in order to tell Peter and the other disciples in verse 2. What they discovered was an empty tomb. What they assumed was that somebody had come and taken the body out of that tomb. In fact, it tells us in verse two, they, whoever they are, have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. In other words, we know he's not where we thought he would be. We don't know where he has gone. And I want you to notice this because this is important when you are trying to convince people of the resurrection. They had no thought of the resurrection when they got there. There was no sense of divine intervention. Their first assumption was that there had been human interference in that tomb. And when they went back and told the disciples, if you don't know the story, you might think that the disciples sitting in that room together were just waiting And when the girls got there and said, listen, we got to the tomb and he's not there, we don't know where they've taken him, that the disciples would say, no, 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 it's okay because he's he's not been taken. He's been resurrected from the dead. No, that's not what Scripture says. Read the story. Luke records it, that when they told the disciples what they had seen, the disciples responded with disbelief said, when they came back from the tomb and told all these things to the 11 and to the others, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. You got to be out of your mind, ladies. I don't know what you saw. I don't know what you've been drinking on this Easter. But that's not possibly what could happen. It informs us of this. The disciples... We're not sitting around waiting for a resurrection either. They weren't waiting for the ladies to come in and say, "We went to the tomb and it's empty." And when they come bursting in, the guys are drinking their coffee and the lady said, "He's not there." And suddenly they jump, just burst out and up from the grave, he arose. That did not happen. No, they were surprised. They were stunned. These men were hidden away behind locked doors. They were frightened. They were defeated. They were done. And the only brave people left were the women. Not surprising. Not surprising. But after hearing of the news of the women, either to verify or to disprove what the women had said, John and Peter jump up and went immediately to the tomb. And I love the way that John writes this. He says, both were running, but the other disciple, he's talking about himself. Just, have you ever heard of people give a humble brag? <laughs> this is John going, I'm, I'm faster than Peter. I just want to get that into the Bible somewhere. The other disciple outran Peter Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked at the strips of linen that were lying there, but he did not go in. Now, let me stop here for a moment because this is fascinating. If the deduction of Mary and the other women that got there that morning was true, that somebody had stolen the body of Jesus, if that were accurate, a thinking person would have to ask themselves this question. Why would robbers take the time to unwrap the body And fold the linen when time is of the essence. Wouldn't unwrapping the body slow things down quite a bit? And frankly, if you're stealing a body and you're not wanting to get caught, it would seem that you would be in a hurry and you would just take it all. And here, They assumed that the grave robbers had taken the clothes, folded them neatly, like it wasn't a rush job, and it just looks like the body somehow emerged through the clothing and it had not been unwrapped or disrobed. And as you continue to look, although John didn't go in, Simon Peter breathlessly catches up with John because he was slower, according to John. And Peter, just like Peter would, runs right by John and goes into the grave. Into the empty tomb. And it says that when Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived, he went into the tomb and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Now, some of you that know your Bibles also know that there's this aspect of the book of John when Lazarus is raised from the dead. And you'll notice that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the jet, he stood outside the tomb and he yelled, Lazarus, come out. And, and honestly, I want to see this on Heaven's Blu-ray when I get there or whatever the latest technology. I don't know how in the world Lazarus got up. He was wrapped up in his grave clothes and somehow he wiggles his way out and he stands there in front of them and Jesus boldly proclaims to the sisters, go and unwrap him. And I'm, I'm thinking, if I'm the sisters, I'm going, listen, you called him up from the dead, you unwrap him. I, I don't know what, what's going to look like there, but y- you did this. But it describes to us that there are grave clothes that are associated with death. And Peter probably told John that you need to come in here and look at this because the part that was covering his head is actually separated from the rest of it. And it tells us in verse 8 that finally the other disciple, this is John, who reached the tomb first, went inside, and it says he saw and he believed. Something triggered in him. And in that moment, he stepped into faith because of the evidence of what he saw. Something clicked in his heart, and this became the dramatic conversion moment for John. Now, I look at this, and and I've grown up in the church, and so I've assumed some things in my mind, and probably most of you have too. I I see a miracle within the miracle here. You know, I, I have always assumed that somehow on Resurrection Sunday that when Jesus came alive again, that he just went through the clothes like, whoo, just whoosh. I don't know what sound you make. When you come back to life and you just, woo, out of your clothes and they settle. But but that's what I've always assumed, you know. And honestly, I have read all of the accounts this week of the resurrection. And as I saw it, it, there really, I realized there's nothing that demands that that happened. Admittedly, there's nothing that excludes it. But, you know, we've often thought there's a miracle within the miracle. Is it possible that Mary taught Jesus to clean his room? Is it possible? that Jesus was accustomed to getting up in the morning and making his bed. And he just made his bed. It's possible. When you recognize the way that this was reported, it is an important reminder to us that the Scripture is not reported this way to make us have an emotional response to this. This very much is just, it's, it's actually calling for us to make a logical decision one way or the other we are dealing with fact or we are dealing with fiction. It's one or the other. The empty tomb in and of itself is incapable of proving the claim of the resurrection because it is circumstantial evidence. There's no point in saying, look, there's an empty tomb, therefore, Jesus is raised from the dead. The way that we approach it is, look, there's an empty tomb, what are we going to do with the empty tomb? Sometimes we Christians, when we're trying to describe our belief to others, make leaps that others cannot make. And some of our agnostic friends will say, this is what I'm talking about. You can't take circumstantial evidence and deduct this from that. But if you wanted to disprove the disciples' claims as silly, if you were a detractor, all you had to do was go to the tomb and produce the dead body but nobody did, and I can tell you with absolute certainty that the enemies of Jesus certainly tried to do that and were unable. In fact, what we find is interesting counter evidence is this that's found in Matthew chapter 28. It was provided to us by the Jewish leaders who went to the Roman soldiers when they recognized that they too had gone to see that the tomb was empty, could not explain it. And so what they did, the Bible tells us, is they bribed these soldiers to lie, gave them a lot of money, And they said to them, here's the story we want you to give. The disciples came and stole the body, and they've taken it somewhere. We don't know where it is. Whatever you do, do not tell people that he rose from the dead. And the Scripture says the soldiers took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, for those of you who are thinkers, I want you to picture what it would be like to be a Roman guard, a centurion, heavily armed standing guard over the most important tomb of that day and age. How in the world are some measly disciples going to knock those boys out, move them away, roll the stone away, take Jesus' body out, unwrap it neatly, fold the clothes? It doesn't make any sense. And then you begin to add to that, the eyewitness accounts that we have chosen not to read today, but I encourage you to do this research on your own. Can you imagine the fear and the anxiety of the religious leaders who had done everything in their power to kill Jesus only to discover three days later he's not there? They don't know where he went, and they're thinking, why won't this guy just stay dead? What do you do with somebody that you have killed that just won't stay dead? And I encourage you to think about this as you're looking at this logically. If the gospel record was manufactured or if it was fabricated, it would be hard to imagine the writers of this invented notion that they would decide to make the foundational witnesses of the resurrection women because women at that point had no status. Men wouldn't grant... A woman, a basis to testify on the authenticity of anything. Female testimony was considered suspect at best and mostly just irrelevant. So when you read the gospel record, on every occasion you find that the women are the ones making the discovery. The women are the ones making the affirmation. It is to the women that Jesus first appears. You have to think to yourself, how fascinating is this? And also... When investigating the resurrection account, you have to ask yourself, what benefit is there to those who testified of its reality? Now, I'm not a lawyer. I know some of you here are. And for those of you that may have been involved in trials, you recognize that one of the things that you do when you have witnesses that are not in your favor is you try to prove that those witnesses gain some benefit from their testimony. So when you look at this in light of that from a legal standpoint, you begin to recognize what benefit did it give the disciples to testify of the resurrection of Jesus? In fact, if if somebody who's giving testimony, it actually goes against them, they become a more credible witness. So what did the disciples get to testifying to the empty tomb? They got suffering, they got scorn, they got abused, and in certain cases, they got death. They didn't expect a resurrection. So why would they invent a resurrection? They weren't sitting around waiting for Easter morning so that everything would be better. Now, some who are disbelievers will say, but listen, Pastor, there are a lot of religious fanatics in our world, and they will say and do anything, and you're absolutely right. But these first Christian martyrs were in a position to know because of what they had seen and the eyewitness accounts, for the cause to which they were prepared to give their lives, whether it was true or whether it was a fabrication. And for you to sit here this morning as an unbeliever, saying, I do not believe any of this, your unbelieving mind wants you to say, they knew it was a fabrication, and they went out and they died for it anyway. And I would say to you, that's a stretch. That's a stretch, isn't it? One commentator said this, man may be prepared to die for a conviction, but they're not going to die for a concoction. You have to think it through. What was the spark that lit the first century church's fused action? Well, that's the description. And frankly, I've spent way too much time on the description, so let me hurry through the the final couple of points. John has an intention in the way that he wrote this. Not only does he give us the intention, but he recorded the events and he tells us why that he recorded these. He says, listen, this is a gospel, it's not a biography. And it focuses essentially on three weeks in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And it compresses a tremendous amount of material and brings to focus primarily upon the, fine, the, the passion of Christ and his resurrection. And he does it purposefully. In fact, he says, I want you to know why I've wrote and written this. And he tells us at the end of the chapter in John chapter 20, it says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in the book. And he goes, listen, this isn't comprehensive what I have written here. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. I'm writing it so that you might believe this, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing on it, here's the benefit that you're going to get from this. You may have life in his name. I'm telling you the reason I get to preach this today is because I'm believing that by the end of this service, some of you that do not have life will have life in his name because of what he has done. And I find that helpful. Because it tells us that John is trying to convince me. He's not just sending out information and randomly hoping that it hits. He says, listen, I want us to know in the day and age in which we live, I'm not here today to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ saying to you, now listen, I want you just do whatever you want with this information. And at the end of that, if you don't believe me, so be it. You, know, you do you, I'll do me. No, that is not what I am saying here. I am saying to you, be a thoughtful person as you investigate. Because as you investigate, the Holy Spirit will begin to reveal things to you and that it won't be a leap of faith into nothing. It will be a leap of faith onto the concrete evidence that Jesus Christ was dead and rose again and showed himself to many people and desires to do a work within your life today. You see, if you were an unbeliever today, then you are sitting here thinking that you might be just time plus matter plus chance. I want you to know you're not just plankton soup. You're not just a series of molecules that have been flung together in suspension. You're not a random speck on the framework of humanity. John says, I wrote this down so that you would consider it and weigh the truth. You see, when you begin to think about it, You must be prepared to consider the possibilities that the laws of the universe are given by a lawgiver who created those laws. And then you begin to think, doesn't it make sense then that on Resurrection Sunday morning we talk about a God who loved us so much that he decided to step into the existence of mankind and overcome our sin and overcome our death and rise again so that he can prove to us we are more than just flesh and blood. We are a living soul worthy of the attention of Almighty God. When you look at it that way, it would be a surprise if there was no resurrection because of God's desire to come and get us. G.K. Chesterton said this, so many people have rejected Jesus not because they examined the evidence and found it wanting, but because they've never once ever examined the evidence. Most unbelievers in our world today, and perhaps it would describe you today, are absolutely clueless as to the evidence that exists to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is so much today that you're going to have to do research on your own, and I want you to read the Bible. Read the Gospel of John. In fact, in just a couple of chapters there, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus shows up to talk to Jesus one night in the dark to find out the answers to life. And he begins to discover that he could never be so good that he wouldn't need Jesus as Savior. And then one chapter later... In chapter 4 of John, you meet a woman at the well who had had five husbands and was living with a sixth and she had come to discover that there was no individual relationship that was going to bring to her the love and the security and the identity. She was looking for it in all the wrong places and she discovers you can never be so bad that Jesus won't be able to save you. Can't be so good that you don't need salvation. You can't be so bad that he will reject you. There's nothing quite like this which then puts into perspective the great verse that we read so often in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is not wishful thinking. This is God coming to earth to interact with us and help us understand ourselves Help us understand our identity, understand our significance fully, and that understanding that he would bring us into the life of God with us. He he indwells us, and he brings us into the life of Christ so that we can live in a relationship with him without the shame and the sin of our guilt because that had been removed. And he says, I'm here to enter into your life, not just for eternity, but I want you to have life and that more abundantly here and then have a wonderful eternity and then to my last point, John writes all this because he expects a reaction. Everything that John writes is here to convince you. Now, I know that the political way to approach this would be, I hope that after hearing me out that, that you will just go and, and, you know, whatever makes you happy, you do. But I'm not going to do that because that would be absolutely crazy, knowing what we know. Now, some of you are salespeople, and, and you'll, you'll get this. When, you, when you're trying to make a sale, you're looking for a response. You don't just make calls. In fact, it would seem weird if there was a call that a business owner took and somebody on the other line says, hey, listen, I've got some brochures. I, I'd really like to show you these brochures. Can I, can I come by and just drop them off? And, and the owner, you just want to drop them off? Yep, yep, I don't want to mess you up. Don't to, your time's valuable. Can I, just, can I just drop these off? And if there's ever an occasion for you to look at them, you can go ahead and look at them, but j- just let me drop them. Let me tell you something. That is not a salesman if that is you. That is a brochure distributor. There's a difference. Because when you're with a salesman, and, and my wife and I were laughing this week at, at some of the encounters that we have had with salesmen, whether or not it be somebody who's selling us furniture or a car, but you know, they generally start out by looking at Cindy and look at me and they say, oh, you brought your daughter with you today, huh? And I'm going, no, that's my wife. Oh, what a beautiful family, you know, just buttering you up, you know, and all this other stuff. A salesman says, listen, I could, I could leave this with you, but I won't. I, in fact, just, just look at the cover. Just, just look at this stuff. I, I want you to see. Oh, look at this. Do you recognize what I can do for you today? Just, just look at... Here, let me turn a couple of, Do you know how this is going to benefit you? This is going to be great. You have five minutes. So let me just describe this for you in a minute. You know, and they're going through the pages, and, and at the end of it, they said, listen, listen. Today... We have a sale today. In fact, if you, if you will agree with this right now, if you will sign up for this right now, I'm going to load you down with stuff that you wouldn't get if you waited till tomorrow. And the salesman in here going, yes, that's it. That's the good stuff. Can I just tell you today, that's what the apostle Paul was doing. That's what John is doing. And frankly, that's what I'm doing. I want to sell you on the evidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ took place. Because when you believe it, it changes everything. It changes everything. This week, I went downstairs and I pulled out a Scott towel. And then I went out into the parking lot and... uh, I actually rubbed this on my tires first and for once in my life, my tires were clean and it didn't show up. So I went to the church van and I just, this is what it's like after youth convention. And I just wiped the church van down with this just in one spot. And it began to dawn on me, in order for something to get clean, something else has to get dirty. Dirty. In order for something to get clean, something else has to get dirty. Is that not the gospel in a simple illustration? The reason that we're here today is not so you can check a box and say, I made it to church on Easter Sunday. The reason that you're here today is for me to convince you that Jesus has come so that he might wipe your life clean. Because on Good Friday, he hung on the cross and he took your dirt. He took your sin, he took your shame, and when the Father from heaven looked at him, he saw not something that was clean and sparkly, he saw the filth of everything that we have done and everything that would be done through humanity throughout the end of time, and he turned his head because the filth was so ugly. And then when Jesus died, he gave up the ghost, He was raised from the dead to prove that not only are our sins forgiven, but he has overcome death, hell, and the grave for you. And if you're an unbeliever here today, I encourage you to weigh the evidence. You do not have to give your brain away to become a believer in Jesus Christ.